Chapter 7 In the Ravine Deeply moved by these vivid memories, the young seeker became silent for a short time. Then he sighed, drew his hand over his forehead, and went on with his narrative. In short, O oh brother, I went about during this whole time as if intoxicated with bliss, and my feet scarcely seemed to touch the earth. On one occasion I felt obliged to laugh aloud, because I'd heard that there were people who called this world a veil of tears, a place of dissatisfaction, and who directed their thoughts and aspirations to not being born again in the human realm. What misguided fools, Somadatta, I cried, as if there could be a more perfect abode of bliss than the terrace of the sorrowless. But beneath the terrace was the abyss. Down into this we had just scrambled, as I had called out these foolish words, and, as if I were to be shown that even the greatest of earthly pleasures has its bitterness, we were at that very instant attacked by several armed men. How many of them there were, it was not possible for us to distinguish in the darkness. Fortunately, we were able to cover our backs by placing them against the wall of rock, and, with calming awareness that we were now only threatened from the front, we began to fight for life and love. We bit our teeth together and were silent as the night as we parried and thrust as coolly as possible, but our opponents howled like devils in order to urge one another on, and we believed that we could distinguish eight or ten of them. Even if now they found a couple of better swordsmen before them than they had expected, our situation was still grave. Two of them, however, soon measured their length on the ground, and their bodies hindered the fighting of the others, who feared to stumble over them, and so be delivered up to the tender mercies of our sword points. We guessed that they then withdrew a few steps, for we no longer felt their hot breath in our faces. I whispered a few words to Somadatta, and we moved a couple of paces sideways, in the hope that our assailants, imagining us to be in the old spot, would make a sudden leap forward and, in so doing, would run against the wall of rock and break the points of their swords, while ours would find a firm lodging place between their ribs. Although we were as cautious as we could be, some faint sound must have awakened their suspicion, for the blind attack we had hoped for did not come. But presently I saw a narrow streak of light strike the wall, and also became aware that this ray was emitted from a lampwick, evidently fixed in a carefully opened holder, beside which a warty nose and cunning half-closed eye were to be seen. As the bamboo pole by the help of which we had scaled the terrace front was still in my left hand, I made a hearty thrust with it. There was a loud shriek, and the disappearance of the ray, no less than the crash of the small lamp as it fell to the earth, bore witness to the efficacy of my strike. This brief respite we made use of to get away as rapidly as possible in the direction from which we had come. We knew that here the gorge became gradually narrower, and the ascent somewhat steep, and that finally one could scramble up to the top without any great exertion. It was nevertheless a piece of great good fortune that our would-be murderers very soon gave up the pursuit in the darkness. At the final ascent, my strength threatened to give way, and I felt that I was bleeding copiously from several wounds. My friend was also wounded, though less severely. On the level once more we cut up my shirt and temporarily bound up our wounds, and then, leaning on Somadatta's arm, I fortunately succeeded in reaching home, where I was obliged to pass several weeks on a bed of pain. There I now lay, tortured by threefold troubles. My wounds and a fever together consumed my body. A burning longing for my beloved devoured my heart, but to these too was soon added apprehension for her precious life. 
for the delicate flower-like being had not been able to endure the news of the mortal danger into which I had been, and perhaps still was, and had fallen victim to a severe illness. Her faithful foster-sister, Medini, however, went daily from one sick bed to another, and so we still enjoyed constant communication and loving exchanges. Flowers passed to and fro between us, and, as we had both been initiated into the mystery of their secret language, we conveyed many things to one another by the help of these sweet messengers. Later, as our strength came back, many a dainty verse found its way from hand to hand. Our condition would soon have become really quite endurable. Our recovery occurred at the same pace for both of us, just as if we were too truly united to allow any precedence whatsoever between us. If the future had not approached and filled us with great concern. I should say here that the nature of the enigmatic attack had not remained a mystery to us. None other than the son of the minister of state, Satagira was his hated name, with whom I had wrestled on that unforgettable afternoon in the park for Varsity's ball. None other than he had set the hired murderers upon me. Beyond a doubt he had noticed that I had remained behind in town after the departure of the embassy, and, his suspicions having been thereby awakened, he had very soon spied out my nightly visits to the terrace. Oh, my friend, that terrace of the sorrowless was, to our love, like a sunken island now. True, I would have joyfully flung my life into the breach over and over again to be able to embrace my beloved, but even if Varsity had had the heart to expose me every night to deadly danger, any such temptation was spared to us. Satagira, in his low cruelty, must have informed the parents of my sweetheart of our secret meetings, for it was soon apparent that Varsity was carefully and jealously watched. Besides which, staying out on the terrace after sundown was now forbidden to her, ostensibly on account of the danger to her health. Thus, then, was our love homeless. That which most of all feels itself at home in secret might only now be so, where the whole world looked on. In that public garden where I first met sight of her divine form, and had searched for her several times in vain, we met once or twice, as if by chance. But what meetings they were! How fleeting the stolen minutes! How hesitating and few the hasty words! How forced the movements which felt themselves exposed to curious or even spying glances! Varsity begged me to immediately leave this town in which I was so threatened with deadly danger because of her presence. She reproached herself bitterly for having prevailed upon me to stay, and thereby having all but driven me into the jaws of death. Perhaps even at this very moment in which she was speaking, a fresh band of assassins was being hired to slay me. If I did not depart at once, and so place myself beyond the reach of this peril, I would make her the murderess of her beloved. Suppressed sobs choked her voice, and I was obliged to stand there without being able to enfold her in my arms or kiss away the tears which rolled, heavy as the first drops of a thunder shower, over the strained contours of her dusky cheeks. Such a farewell I could not abide, and I told her it was not possible to leave without first meeting her alone, in whatsoever way this might have to be accomplished. Just at that moment we were obliged to part, owing to the approach of several people. Varsity's face held a despairing and beseeching look, but it could not shake my determination. Spurred on by longing for me and fear for my life, and counselled moreover by her clever and in all love matters experienced foster sister Medini, I trusted that the ingenuity of my beloved would be certain to find some way out of this difficulty. And I was not deceived, for that very night Somadatta informed me of a wonderfully promising plan of hers.